Now recording. There we go. All right. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Flail Forward. This is your host here, Rob. I'm joined this week by a very full crew. We have uh, Jonathan here. Hello. Cavoir is here tonight. Hello. Uh, Hello. I was probably late on that because I was checking the stream audio. <laughs> You're fine. Mark's here tonight. Hello. Hi. And Catrice is here. Hello. And joining us is Anne Goodall. And she has just completed her master's thesis entitled Magic, Adventure, and Social Participation, Tabletop Role-Playing Games, and Their Potential to Promote Social Inclusion and Citizenship. Uh, and we are going to talk to her about that because that's uh, an interesting interesting topic uh, that we're all kind of, well, I think, you know, that's something that we're all interested in. Like promoting social inclusion is definitely something that RPGs have been doing much better in the last uh, 10 years. And um, I, my, my, my initial thoughts when, and so you approached me to be a part of this. Uh, I don't think that's, uh, I don't know. What are the ethical guidelines here? Can I say what I did? I suppose. I don't know. I'll uh, do it. Yeah. So it's up to uh, you. I obviously cannot um, give any information, but if uh, you would like to, you can. Sure. Okay, great. So you can't talk about me, but I can. <laughs> Unless you like give me um your yeah, we'll just leave it you can talk about you. I yeah. will You can talk about me. You can say anything <laughs> you want. I'm 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 good. Anyway. Robin already anyway. So Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they talk about me all the time, I'm sure, behind my back. Those bastards. No, no. Anyway. We we would never say anything behind your back. <laughs> I know, you say it to my face, which I really No, don't appreciate. worry. We would totally insult you to your face because yeah. we respect you like that. <laughs> Yeah, this is what having friends is like. Uh, <laughs> all right. <laughs> so, but um, so the first thing that, that I wanted to ask you, Anne, is um, first of all, welcome to the podcast. And uh, second, what made you want to go down this route for something as big as a master's thesis? Well, um, I was finishing up my undergrad in criminology and kind of knew that an undergrad has kind of become the high school um, diploma. So I wanted to go higher and I started making myself a list of kind of topics I came across that I in or found interesting. So actually one of them that was super interesting that I was almost going to do was actually um, like um, refugee laws and migrants and how countries are stopping migrants from coming in and all the awful things that countries have been doing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was persuaded to do, I had come across an article actually on Snapchat, oddly enough, about how Dungeons and Dragons has been banned in prisons, mm -hmm. uh, which just seemed absolutely insane to me. And I kind of said to myself, I'm a little bit tired of doing really depressing research. While it is super interesting and very important, of course, I kind of wanted to do something a little bit more fun and still important. I mean, it's still like a, the original um, will for this study was to study people who have been incarcerated. Um, but instead, I came out with this project, which is equally important and also super interesting. So, hmm. so study. What what was the thing that um, sort of 
what were you trying to find out with this uh, as it relates to criminology? Yeah, maybe you could give us a rundown of uh, the, the thesis itself for anyone listening. Um, what exactly was your project? Yeah, so what I was kind of, what kind of guided all of this was like, what is so, so the original thing that really got me interested um, in this was I was kind of like wondering to myself, because I don't know how much you know about D&D in like a carceral setting. Um, it's very like difficult to get the materials that you need, like dice are banned because they're considered um, gambling. Um, the books are not allowed in many places as well. There's actually this, I came across like, um, some, like, uh, not a charity, but they were collecting old books from people and new, of course, um, to donate to prisoners. Um, so it's very difficult and they do crazy things like to make a dye, they'll wet a ball of toilet paper and place it in the windowsill. Um, to form a corner and then, you know, the next day shape the other side. So they'll spend like days making a die. And I kind of thought to myself, that's insane. Like what is so important about these games that somebody would go through all this effort? Which led me down this research. So our original question when I started doing it um, was literally what is the importance of tabletop role-playing games for individuals undergoing difficulties um, and challenges and um, what the thesis ended up actually answering is kind of what are the learning outcomes that come from tabletop role-playing games so through the study I interviewed nine people total all from like completely different backgrounds um, some people's hardships. I did have one person who had been incarcerated. Um, some people had um, are transgender and undergoing that transition was kind of the hardship. Other people have uh, gone through mental health challenges, uh, things like that. So it was a very diverse background. Um, and so what I came out with was kind of what are the most important features of tabletop role-playing games for these people. And it was a lot about um, having flexibility and the ability to be creative, all at the same time being challenging, um, and also always having some sort of link to real life in some sort of way. Um, and then of course I linked that to a very academic a term called a liminal space, uh, which is actually an anthropological term, um, but it's essentially a transitional space. So they transform within this space. So while playing TTRPGs, it's a transformative space. And when they finish playing TTRPGs or later on, they have transformed um, into something new. So the transformations were essentially um, they have built a community and they've also undergone some sort of self-development. So often uh, skill-based, um, you know, learning mathematics to gaining or developing social skills. But also for some people, it was a chance to develop what I 
call like self-advocacy skills, which was super cool and interesting. Um, I had one participant talk about how it, um, she considers herself having learned like customer service skills. So, you know, never saying no to people, the customer is always right. Um, but through these games, she's actually, you know, started to realize like people kind of like it when she says no or when she gives her opinion. Um, so she's kind of developed this, which was super cool. So in the end, all of these things together allow the person or help the person become a social participant. Uh, but beyond that, um, we actually extended it further into the actual concept of citizenship, um, where using um, some, you know, academic guy named Roe's definition of citizenship, we kind of found how tabletop role-playing games can actually help people meet different markers of citizenship, such as resources, roles, relationships, responsibilities, and rights. So yeah, it kind of all boils down to how these games have actually been super important for people and really help them become social participants and citizens who give back to their community. That's absolutely amazing. Um, I'm really interested in how you decided to break down sort of these key elements of, um, of what the game provides in order to translate that to sort of the, the learning outcomes. So I know you had mentioned some of these like liminal space, that transformative space was key to the, the uh, identity of what this game was providing. Um, can you go through the, the list again? What were the other special features, I guess, that were involved in an RPG specifically? Uh, so I kind of divided it into two main categories, which were kind of the game mechanics and the narrative structure. Mm -hmm. So the game mechanics themselves, it was a lot more, what I kind of found interesting is it's a lot more about the players themselves um, being able to set their own limits, I guess, or the group together. Um, so it was very much about like being able to create your own house rules, having that flexibility, um, I'm just scrolling through my thesis now too, because now that I've published it, it's kind of like all washed out of my head. <laughs> so yeah, the game mechanics was really about having, like being able to have multiple possibilities to what you can do, but also with the importance, like rules are super important. You shouldn't just be able, like one participant, his example was like, you know, if I wanna build a castle on the moon, I can't just like will myself to be on the moon, but I can use like the game rules or like, you know, logic and be like, okay, I need to build myself a rocket ship to get to the top of the, to get to the moon. And I need to figure out how I'm gonna get like, my building stones up onto the moon and you know so it that's like the challenging element of it like it shouldn't be a super you know easy game however on the other hand um there were 
so I didn't talk about this too much in my thesis, but there was also like another side where some people need also that. So a lot of people like when they were younger who had experienced bullying talked about how their games were actually just like these crazy like power trips. Mm -hmm. um, how they had all these like crazy powerful magical tools that were just like destroying like armies of goblins and you know doing crazy powerful things which at that time was important um but for these challenges or these now that they are older um having these challenges and be able being able to kind of like work their brain and do these things which in the end um actually kind of gives them like a sense of um like accomplishment and also an opportunity something else that was very important that came out was that it's an opportunity to also f receive validation from other people who tell you like oh whoa that was super cool and also to give back validation to other people, which is kind of where the community building comes in. Um, mm -hmm. Then moving on to like the more narrative structure, that was really about being able and having the opportunity to explore like all sorts of storylines. Um, and so like one participant, she was very, um, she was incredibly interesting to speak to and she was telling me how like she would take she would create these characters um that oftentimes were experiencing something that she herself was experiencing in her life or had experienced and was still trying to like process and all of a sudden in the middle of their campaign you know they would go on this like side quest to discover who her family is things like that so it was really an opportunity to, for her to kind of take control and go explore this type of story that she wanted um and then again I like as the group together they can also so there was a lot of talk about um like i was very surprised how many people brought up that their uh games went into like the territory of like um collusion and like things that are actually happening in real life um it was actually yeah no the collusion one was a really surprising one how many people games have turned into uh to that topic um i think i have lost track of what the question was now. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think that, that really like nailed sort of all of the different elements that factor into what um, like a role-playing game offers. Um, one thing in particular that you touched on that I thought was really interesting was the idea of um, all the players, um, specifically in like the prison system, buy into this set of rules um, that are all sort of agreed upon limitations on what you can or should do within the context of the game. Like you said, they can't just wish themselves to be on the moon, um, which I think is really interesting from the perspective of people who are incarcerated because in a way those are the people that have broken some rules like that is the the societal rule that they might not have agreed to that they have sort of broken to end up in that situation so it's really interesting that there's this game 
uh, or this these kinds of games that appeal to them where there is sort of an agreed upon rule set that they can play with. Um, I don't know how much of that your uh, thinking touched on, but I think that definitely factors into this sort of idea of what um, what that citizenship means. There's sort of a, a rule space that we as citizens operate in. Mm-hmm. Hi. Have not thought about that at all, but that is a really interesting analysis. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's about it's about like agency and structure, right? It's like once you have structure, you have certain things imposed upon you, certain limits imposed upon you, um, and then but you generally still have agency within that structure. And if you don't have any agency within the structure, like say it's a game, um, it's a pretty miserable game because right. you don't you're not making any choices. And if you have a game at that point. It's not a game, yeah. Um, it, it, or it could be argued that it's not a game, I suppose, but you could still have a game with no agency, although that would be weird. Um, but but similarly in a society, you are looking for uh, that same thing. You're looking for structure and agency. And um, the structure, of course, being the laws of the society that we've all, air quotes, agreed to. Um, and then the agency being uh, what you're allowed to do within that society, the rights within that right. um, society. I think, I think where some place that's where RPGs are kind of heading are kind of in front of that structure right now. And there's a lot of talk, particularly in the last, last 10, 20 years, but more so in the last 10 for sure, um, about uh, responsibilities that you inherently bring to the table when you're an agent inside a structure. Like, um, you know, when you're, when you're at the table, and you're role playing. Uh, you have things like the X card or um, lines and veils that uh, give you a pre-agreed upon set of responsibilities. To you know, in the case of lines and veils, you say, okay, we're going to not talk about these things explicitly or not talk about these things at all. And every player at the table ha- now has that responsibility. Or with the X card, uh, when somebody taps it, um, you have the responsibility to okay, we're going to drop that subject and, and just move past it and sort of fast forward from here. Um, but I, it's, it's odd to me that, uh, there's not a similar, there's, there's some sort of, of discussion around social responsibilities. I think that's happening more now, but it doesn't seem like it's always been a part of that, uh, the rights discussion. You know, like with with certain rights come, come like basically because your rights are my responsibility and my my rights are your responsibility in, in any sort of exchange. You know, we we both have the responsibility to look out for each other because um, you can't overextend like that. Once you start taking responsibility for your own rights, I think that's tyranny. I'm not sure, but it could be an interesting definition. Um, like I have all the rights, and you don't have to enforce. You know, I, you, it's not you don't have to. Uh, limit me in any way uh or you can't limit me in any way i think anyway that's that's going off on a tangent for sure uh but the responsibility thing is interesting and you did touch on that in the in the paper um what uh what kind of were you able to discuss any sort of those things i know the the x card came up in the thesis um, was that something that came up as a result of research or, uh, was that something that one of the participants mentioned to you or how, how did you, uh, how did you touch on that and, and what effect did it have on, on your, on your thesis once you found out about it? I think 
it, I had heard of, like I during the interviews I had heard about it. I had heard about it in my research um, beforehand as well. But mm -hmm. the reason it actually got brought up, um, and this was, it became more relevant um, during my defense actually. So this is one of the other professors, um, my evaluators wanted to um he's very interested in like the ideas of power in society um mm. and things like that and so he was kind of like well you know you talk about these games as like realms of pure possibility but they're not really and so that's kind of why that discussion came in was to add a little bit of nuance to that and, you know, things like gender play, uh, plays a role, age, um, how experienced you are is all going to limit you um, or the game to some degree. Um, so that's really where that part of the discussion came from. Hmm. Um, what was the main question again? I don't remember. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Specific. Oh, specifically the X card, yeah. Or, or where, did, where did you encounter the X card and was it? Yeah, so um, it was it was both research and talking to people, um, and it's like a super interesting concept. Like the way you guys are are talking about it, like yeah, everybody at the table does have responsibility, and I kind of saw one participant in particular, he was having, he's recently, um, he left his group of friends um, recently and has been trying to get back in D&D because that's what he was doing with his friends. And that was kind of his only um, social activity in life, I guess. He mm -hmm. has a lot of like relationship issues. Um, but the table that he's joined, he's been like from his description he's been very um like bullied out so like one super like a quote from him that i thought was kind of very um powerful i guess is he's saying like they want me to you know be the guy that takes all the hits like i'm the fighter i'm the strongest but i take all the hits and then they don't want to heal me so why would i stay with these people and you're mm. like well yeah <laughs> why would you like they're not like one this is a team sport i think we can call it um so if you're not like looking out for each other like the game itself is not gonna work because now he's left and they've lost their one fighter um and yeah he's not enjoying himself and he's not gonna help you so yeah it actually makes a lot of sense to a degree like if you look at what mark was saying earlier about he was actually kind of surprised that there were rules in prison that the prisoners were actually agreeing to follow the rules in these games when in society they had broken the rules but it actually kind of makes sense when you think about it in prison too because like in prison there are still rules there it's like you don't piss off the gang members or you don't wake up the next day so 
there are still rules that they are agreeing to. And this kind of makes sense that they would be also following these kinds of rules in in the games as well and how it applies to sorry, the guy outside my <laughs> car horn. I, I completely agree with Kat. Um, I think there's something also about agency of the the buy-in to being able to sit down and play this game. Mm. Where like Rob was mentioning that like we have kind of uh, implicitly agreed to the rules of society. These are very like explicit rules that we all sit down at the table and we agree that these are the rules of the game, all buying into it from the get-go. Whereas like we as citizens maybe have not sort of sat down and said, yes, I, I definitely agree to these rules. Um, so I think there's something about the agency and maybe like your uh, um, uh, evaluator had said, the the power that's implicit in it, where you can create this sort of environment where you are fully um, bought in to what you're able to to experience um, and what your agency is, I think is really interesting. To add a little bit of nuance as the uh, criminology student, <laughs> um, while people, like we can consider people who are in prison or incarcerated, you know, are not following the rules, we also need to consider kind of those social structures and the power relations that have kind of put them in a position to, you know, sometimes they need to break the rules or, you know, the argument that like mm. drug addiction is not a criminal issue, it's a mm -hmm. health issue. Mm. Um, so there is like kind of that nuance. And I think playing like for sure like playing these games when you put it in a context of prison is an opportunity um for agency in itself because when you are in prison it's very um like your whole life is structured right you go to dinner or you know go eat breakfast then they do a count then you have like an hour to go in the yard then they do another count of you guys um you know you're often stripped of like any um you don't you know you have a number not a name anymore you're wearing a uniform like you're stripped of your identity um so these games can definitely be like an opportunity for agency and to escape as well um Yes, just a little nuance. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's well, almost kind of strange, though, what you're saying there. Like, the way you describe it, like, almost all agency is completely removed from the inmates. But at the same time, they want them to learn how to be able to enact their agency in a way that's actually useful to society. Like, okay, once we let you out in the open, you now have to be able to figure out how to do this on your own, despite that we've never actually let you do this on your own. Yes. So the games <laughs> kind of seem important in this because yeah. it has the agency where they can learn to do this on their own. So I think um, like it's interesting and like necessarily just because d d is such a monster, um, like size-wise in, in uh, TTRPGs, uh, that you obviously used a lot of it in your research, um, or you had to refer to it a lot in your research, whether it was because that's the game that was being played or because that was what research was available. Um, 
but uh, I'm curious, and, and you didn't really go into it, um, but I was curious if you thought like the banning of D&D in prisons were, was legitimate um, or largely just punitive. Um, and sort of the reason I'm asking is because we sort of sometimes run into these uh, situations a lot. Uh, but at this point in my sort of role-playing sort of career or whatever you want to call it, I'm sort of like just done defending D&D. Like, I don't care. <laughs> I'd rather just defend role-playing in general. So like, mm-hmm. um, like banning D&D for, from prisons, you know, despite how flimsy it sort of is, might have some validity. But like what, you know, role-playing games can we get into them? Um, you know, and if it's dice are an issue, there's so many options that don't include dice. Like, there's so many, uh, so many options that could be beneficial if we just sort of move outside of the context of D and D as the role playing game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was also something like the mentioning of the dice. Like, dice are kind of banned in prisons because of the gambling, but there's also the issue of even if you're role playing somebody else might steal your dice and then use it for gambling. So I can kind of see the argument there. So there really does kind of need to be a question asked about what if we play games that are diceless, is that actually going to bypass that issue? I don't think so. So kind of what my research, like what I've seen, there is very little, there are some like, interesting like articles on it but i think the main issue kind of like you know my own analysis from what i know and things like that is that they like the prison doesn't have control over these people when they're doing this activity so no matter what they're doing or what tools they're using um like they don't have control and they also don't like something else i found was like they don't understand what the activity is. So it kind of is like the satanic panic where even um, when I was telling people, I was telling a family friend about my research and she was like, um, you know, she's a middle-aged woman and her son is, you know, a little bit older than me. But she was like, oh my goodness, that was the game that my son was going to play. And I told him he couldn't play it. He couldn't go out with his friends because you know, it was bad and dangerous and these people were in gangs. <laughs> so oh, yeah, sorry. It's just, <laughs> I mean it's just it's just a laughable laughable attitude now, but yeah, it it was so prevalent at one point that I could fully imagine somebody carrying that attitude forward having not having another contact point with it. Yeah. You know? And yeah. like I like I am by no means like an expert. I've played like a few like D&D games and I played um Blades in the Dark, I think it's called. Uh-huh. Um, I'm pretty sure they won't let that one in the prisons. Yeah, no, it's about ice <laughs> being criminals, so <laughs> I think that's pretty off limits. That was Yeah. Um, something interesting too, from like what I read and even the person who had been incarcerated, uh, she was like, we did not touch on those topics. None of like, we avoided like at all costs of those types of storylines. Right. Um, so. <laughs> and that actually doesn't surprise me. Like they're just like all of us, 
who play we, wherever we play we're we're looking to not play our lives right like and i'm not saying that is their specific lives but but each person is in there and i mean that's sort of like a preemptive like uh that's like a lines and veils, right? Like they're saying like, we're not going to do this because we don't want to go down that road. And for whatever reason, right? Like it, it seems clear to me, like they, if, if I was in that situation, I would also probably not want to reenact that. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly to your point you made earlier about like just defending like D and D being the, the 800 pound gorilla in the space kind of um, it, it, it is, I mean, I guess it is somewhat problematic that D and D has the structure it has because the main way you advance in D and D is by killing things and taking their stuff. So, like, even even structurally, like, I, I can see where, like, you're, you're to your point of like maybe it's okay for prisons to ban that game, but role playing in general is like you know it's such a it's a wide open space. Like, when, once you um, once you play D and D a little bit and you start getting like you're like okay what else is there and you you go to other games and there there's i mean at this point geez i think i have a game on my shelf about playing the animals in the garden of eden when these two weird creatures show up and like how you react to it <laughs> and, the, and that's a whole you know there's an avenue there i mean i got a game called dialect that i play with my um with my mom and my wife over over the uh, uh christmas vacation and that's about creating a language um, and having your community taken away from you. And, you know, I can really see how a game and, and then how your characters react. And I can really see a game like that or games with um, different structures being having a stronger rehabilitative impact than something where the structure is uh, pretty set in stone. I mean, if, if rules is written, I'm saying, obviously you can do things inside D and D that are not that, but, yeah. but, uh, yeah. And I wonder about what your feelings are on like the sort of the opening up that space inside of prisons to have, um, you know, maybe even commission designers to create games that, that are specifically rehabilitative and, and contain concepts like cognitive behavioral therapy or, or things that can be, um, uh, you know, I don't want to say stealthed in, but like gamify rehabilitation in some sense. I am so like I am absolutely. I go through like a little bit of a discussion on how like we do use like role playing in like all sorts of like therapies and things, mm -hmm. um, and even like compare it to things like dance therapy and drama therapy um which are used in prison mm -hmm. i think um like i'm all for i i think these like role-playing games are have like absolutely their merit and they have been used i've only seen examples with kids um but they've been used as kind of like a therapy with kids mm. i think one of like what I feel is, I, I guess this is more of like my own personal opinion. And I think this is also like something in kind of prison research or even just general research. When it's no longer like a game anymore that you're doing for leisure, when you're kind of 
forced to do it, it's not fun anymore and you don't want to participate. And that's something especially true in prison where your whole life is structured for you and you only have like, you know, those few moments um, that you can do whatever you want. So I don't know if as an actual like therapeutic program, it would be helpful, but I think like having it available to people um, would be beneficial. Hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, I think the inherent, one of the inherent parts of a game is its voluntary nature. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so using it as a on like a demanded therapy, I think would, would defeat the point. I agree. Yeah. No, we know that's not going to work. Like it, like the, like if you're trying to get somebody to do something like say, overcome a fear of a phobia it doesn't work if you just like throw fucking spiders in their face they have to choose to you know decide that they're going to brave the spiders themselves because you're not removing their fear in that case you're building up their bravery and that would be kind of correlated here like you're not trying to say okay we're going to enforce order on you it has to be a choice for them to want to order it themselves hmm. absolutely um, yeah there a really interesting quote um from your your thesis um about buy-in to the game itself um so I, I might just quote this directly um this was by a participant named adam who says uh specifically to dungeons and dragons dnd assumes a top-down motivation characters are going to be killing monsters they're going to be getting gold, and they're going to get better at killing monsters for gold. Whatever you do, the game assumes you're going to be going for that. If the players want to tell a different story, a story of like romancing and the drama of human falling, humans falling in love with an immortal creature, that's an interesting story, but there's uh, no, you can't do that in D&D. &D. There's no incentive to do that in D&D. There's no carrot at the end of the road to push the player down. Um, so whatever you use D&D &D for, the toolkit that it represents is a toolkit to tell a particular kind of story. Um, yeah, that was me. Yeah. Oh, you were? Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I just remade my own point, I guess, but there it is. Great. Yeah, no. Yeah. Um, so, so that was um, the sort of interesting perspective that I thought was um, the, the buy-in to the type of game that you are engaging in um, is is one of the foremost things that like we as game designers try to strive for that we're trying to sell sort of the image of what this game experience will be to you and that that's why someone would pick up a game is because they there's sort of a a buy-in to what you're going to be doing um and if that doesn't align with what you want to be doing then you're not gonna um engage in it fully so if you have sort of that therapeutic mindset i think in in the game that you're trying to bake in um, I think it's important to have sort of first that that motivation of why would someone want to pick up this game and then be able to incorporate those elements like um, this is a game that's going to be about romance because I think that's an interesting story. But we're also going to say that this is something that we can really use as a tool to help people um, find that social inclusion or be able to to get that peer feedback or something like this, like and, and to create mechanics around that. Um, but the premise still needs to be the thing that will drag, like, bring people in to, to sitting down and playing this game. Um, yeah, I think that is, like, I think it would be nice to have, like, a more, 
um, like, I think it could either be like really lame or it could be really fun for certain groups to actually have some sort of mechanic where they can kind of reward each other, you know, not just like the DM or like game master, you know, giving that um, uh, extra little benefit for good role playing. Like, it'd be really cool to have people be able to be like, hey, that was really cool what you did. Um, I don't know, to, some sort think, of reward. I'm trying to think yeah. of the examples. Uh, the only one I can think of off the top of my head, although I know there are more, is in most uh, versions of Burning Wheel. It hands out there is some uh, table-wide discussion of handing out uh, points at the end for outstanding mm -hmm. actions, but I could not, but I know there's more and there's better examples. Yeah, well, like, I, I, I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just in, extrapolating from what I've seen other people do, but, like, Blades in the Dark is more more particular about how D&D, &D, or, sorry, how uh, experience points are received, and it's about, did you do this specific thing? And it's it's about, like, did you match this style of play? Um, and it, it's it's sort of very broad, and I believe, and I could be wrong, like, you're allowed to, like, the whole table is is sort of encouraged to say, hey, like, I think you earned this experience for doing this thing, you know, that matches, you know, the the sort of uh, specific guideline. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's not just the GM giving out the experience. In fact, the GM isn't allowed to argue with the experience given out or taken. Uh, yeah, uh, what I was going to mention is that's something it, that's one of the things that's, it got, that's a part of the PVTA in its blood, uh, that's very <laughs> that it inherited that directly from that. So I figured I yeah. should mention that. Yeah, yeah, it's worth saying. I, I mean, there's other and there's other kinds of ways that, like, I think I think it's something that's actually somewhat common in, at at uh, D and D fifth edition tables now is um, players being able to go, give other players inspiration. Like mm -hmm. when you, I mean, that and that as, as a house rule. Uh, you know, a, a player can give out inspiration to another player if they think they did something cool. And it doesn't, you know, this is not a, like, this is not going to break the game in any sort of sense, you know, because normally the responsibility to give out inspiration is for the GM thinking that another player did something cool. But sometimes it's nice not to have that pressure as the GM, like, you know, be, constantly being on the lookout for having that thing back in the back of your head, you know, it, takes up space, takes up computational, however you want to frame the brain as a, as a thinking unit. Um, mm. It does take up uh, ticks or whatever. And I think offloading that to players and, and saying like, you know what, anybody can award inspiration to another player that, that you think you did something cool or they said something neat and it was like really in character and like pumped you up. That would be a, an easy way to get that even into, uh, even into D and D. Yeah. I think like another thing to consider, which I didn't have much of a chance to, I guess, talk about, I didn't get really much data on it, but kind of when I finished, I was like, there's an, we haven't talked about the GM at all. And like, mm. what really you gain as a GM, because most of the people I interviewed, um, we more spoke about their experience as a player, but not necessarily as a GM mm. and what they gain from that. and. So I think that's kind of the next place to go, I guess, is find like some sort of way to reward that. Um, hmm. 
Yeah. Do you want to ask us? I mean, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I guess for me, GMing, the reason I, I transitioned from play to, to GMing, and I did so pretty early on. So I, I, I played my first game around age eight or nine. And uh, as soon as I figured out that was, as, actually, as soon as I figured out that my friend was basically making it up as they went along, uh, I was like, oh, that sounds really fun. So just inventing the scenarios and saying, like, this is what happens. And then, you know, what, what for me is being like the locus of feedback from the other players is quite enjoyable. Like, you know, I pre present with a scenario and then the surprise and delight I get from having a total, like getting, an, getting back a totally unpredictable answer from somebody is definitely part of the fun for me. What about you yeah. guys? Well, I'm like, I'm a player in the sense of like, I'd way rather be a player. Um, and GMing uh, often, or at least used to, but it, it doesn't really scare me like, like it used to scare me, but I still like um, uh, uh, sort of creates anxiety uh, for a few reasons. One is there's like an amount of planning that needs to go in ahead of time, but also too is like uh, you have to. It's it's not really true. Like it's a, a team sport. I think someone said earlier, but mm -hmm. but uh, it but you there's like an expectation of like creating something that people enjoy and so like i'm i find myself you know after the game looking for um validation as like hey so did you like it did you like it like was that okay was that okay and then you know even though knowing if i was the player in that i would have had perfectly fine time hmm. um, is that why you designed a two-player game where like they, the players have equal agency that's I designed that game to sort of help with that, like to mm. help tackle that in the sense of like it's or I designed it that way because it it's you have no choice, I guess. Like right. <laughs> you have to do both things. Like you uh -huh. can't act like just a player. Um it doesn't work, you know, if you act in the more passive way. Hmm. Um, um right. I I guess since I GM a lot, I should probably talk about it. Okay. Yeah, you really should. <laughs> uh, but I don't think I want to talk about so far as I'm trying to talk about like benefits of this about how and why GM because um anyway. <laughs> so okay, so most of the positive things from being a GM for me are tied to uh, a like it's interesting to see how people play off what you do and all that. that that's nice it's also easier to suck emotional energy out of people that way so that's nice <laughs> and that's one of the major things i use tabletop role-playing games for so well we have a psychic vampire on the podcast i didn't know that <laughs> <laughs> sorry so but it's like really hard to decouple what my thoughts on jamming from that because it is no. actually extremely true uh but uh <laughs> what i was gonna say is uh, for me, a lot of the, how should I phrase it? I ended up, I started doing, G, like, the very first game I played, I was the GM, because, well, I was technically the storyteller, because it was World of Darkness. Um, but, uh, and I just, I had no pro, I'm pretty comfortable flipping between things and tr acting on my feet, and 
I was with people that I knew even if I messed up, it didn't matter. And I don't know what, I'm actually finding it really hard to get my thoughts together on this in a meaningful, constructive way. So if you want to ask a specific question, <laughs> I can try to answer it better than just rambling. I'm sorry. I guess, okay, the question, I guess, as it pertains to, is do you feel like as a GM, you gain the same um, sort of um, uh, benefits um uh as as a player like um i'm having trouble wording this the right way but like we're i, I could try to answer okay yeah. so uh a lot of the enjoyment of role playing games for me comes with telling a really weird story that wouldn't happen in other contexts or telling the type of story that like i want to see or be part of more and it works better with groups that I, I know better. Uh, but so, uh, uh, generally speaking, when I'm a player in those rare circumstances, I tend to make characters that are, ex are by the standards of the person running fairly on uh, the other players, fairly off the wall because by standards of normalcy are completely screwed up and like the ideas are usually things that have been fermented for way too long and they get a bit esoteric i don't so whereas when i'm being the jam i can just throw off esoteric one-off characters with dumb concepts and the players can just guide glide right past them without noticing <laughs> i'm not sure if that's the actual answer to your question um, well, I, I guess specifically with regards to the thesis, there was a talk about like uh, I, I'm trying to think of the right wording, like but creating citizens, or you know what I mean, like um, that role playing can help build these um, sort of roles and responsibilities within uh, a person uh, that sort of help us be better citizens, and as we sort of understand our roles and responsibilities in life, also. And I guess are you getting that same? benefit i guess i'm just making this question up but it, this is kind of where i was asking like if the okay, gm so the, has a similar uh, benefit or or not i'm the wrong person to ask that i don't get that benefit out of trpgs right, right. are really psychologically unhealthy for me moving on <laughs> <laughs> well that's not strictly true but that's a good <laughs> joke answer <Yeah>. i can <laughs> uh, chime in a little bit on this one <laughs> please yeah um, save me from myself <laughs> so the kind of like final discussion on citizenship what i did find was that here a lot of the examples actually came from people um playing as a uh, gm so kind of just like for example like one of them uh, one of the like markers of citizenship is um, receiving your resources, which are kind of things we need to live our lives, which is the the definition provided. Um, and so there are kind of like there are things kind of like a social network which can be built just through being a player. But, you know, interestingly, like, you know, some people have made a career out of this um, and are gaining money which is people that play as a gm or game designer things like that um 
And then there are like roles was another important one, which is roles that a person is proud of and that others recognize as important. So we had kind of the idea that like as a player and as a GM, people um, can teach other participants, which was kind of important. Oh, did I drop? Oh, I uh, no. Okay. <laughs> I think it might be Kat. Can you hear her now? Hello? Oh, Kat's mic just went off. Yeah, I think it was Catrice's, um, and we can I can hear you fine anyway. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll keep going then. Get going. Um, so for the roles, um, for some people, it was an opportunity, again, like moving to it being kind of like a career opportunity, or for one participant, it was um, actually being able to volunteer. And for her, um, she's had pretty severe uh, mental health struggles. Uh, she had to uh, drop out of school. And um, it was actually very difficult for her because her um, like career goal was to be a writer. And that's what she was going to school for. And all of a sudden, um, because of her depression, she totally lost her ability to write and her language skills, and it was super like detrimental to her. Um, so D and D kind of became a way for her to start storytelling again in a kind of more safe environment where it didn't have to be like a perfect story with all of a sudden like a crazy plot twist. Um, but it also became an opportunity for her to volunteer as a GM um, and made her feel like she was giving back to the community because she wasn't able to hold a job as uh, she wasn't able to go to school. But hey, she could do this little thing and she felt like she was giving back. And beyond that, um, she also her younger brother passed away from cancer um, and she is like financially not able to go back home to visit her family. Um, so these games became a way for her to also play like that big sister role um, by kind of teaching new players. She runs tables for uh, new players generally and also like purposefully inclusive to women and LGBTQ uh, plus uh, communities. So uh, for her, it was an opportunity to play a big sister and like kind of be proud of people and teach them. And like these, you know, people think she's funny. Um, so that was another like way that being a GM helped her kind of reach this citizenship role. Um, mm -hmm. And again, similar with responsibilities, being a GM gives you these responsibilities that you think are important, other people think are important, you know, they want you to show up to this game um, prepared and ready to play. Um, and, you know, you, they get that feedback back, like, oh, that was a really great game, like, thank you. Mm -hmm. uh, so those are just yeah. kind of like small examples of how in my research anyways, the GM role helped people reach that citizenship yeah I, I i that's i mean somebody who was diagnosed and treated with depression it definitely helped like having even just a consistent a consistent meeting time for friends so that you don't let that that part of your life slide away was definitely helpful you know because i think without without a structured activity 
that was weekly. Like it would have been much worse for me for sure. So uh, yeah, I, I can speak to that a little bit, and I, I I would confirm that 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 it's a low pressure environment. You know, it it is low pressure because you know everybody's making it up. Everybody's sort of on the same page, and if you're doing it, I think kind of right air quotes right. Um, you're all at the table encouraging each other. And even that little bit, like weekly encouragement and drip, even if it's for something imaginary, can, can really, you know, if somebody doesn't have that encouragement anywhere else, like that's a big deal. So yeah, that, that, that's another way in which RPGs have definitely helped me personally. And I can see it, you know, especially if somebody's going through a really, tough time like you're describing with this participant of, of, of losing somebody close to them and um not being able to continue in in the other things they found meaningful in their life prior having a little bit of low pressure environment to to reestablish that meaning could be really valuable yeah i can see that i had another participant too who um he had experienced um he was experiencing a ptsd major depression he's gone through a lot of things in his life um you know he's gone through um like domestic abuse he witnessed um a young person uh, commit suicide in front of him by jumping in front of a train uh, while he was on duty like he's <laughs> like and he yeah he said like um like I think he did say kind of like uh tabletop role playing or role playing games saved my life and he was explaining how you know he's getting gotten to the point he wasn't getting out of bed like he wasn't leaving the house at all um and he started playing World of Warcraft um and he kind of realized he was good at it and he was kind of like slowly progressing and getting better and then he kind of switched over to tabletop role playing games and going in person and meeting people and and like slowly um he's now become a little bit of like a leader in his community he has like all these kids that um he's a little bit of a mentor too you know he says like i can't really leave the house with my friends without getting stopped on the street you know somebody being like hey what's up man um Mm -hmm. so it was like it's another example of how obviously these games are not you know for everybody we all have our interests some people are not gonna you know enjoy these games that are not gonna have the same effect but for some people they are very powerful things so you just published so i understand what this question might be <laughs> a little uh something you haven't thought about but have you thought about um expanding on your research further or these methods that you might be able to expand on your research further where maybe larger larger sample groups or um i don't know maybe focusing on more specific aspects uh, of role-playing and um yeah i'm just curious if you had considered how you might pursue this further uh research or otherwise i am writing so out of the same data that i gathered I'm writing two other articles with my um, thesis um, advisor. So the data is the same. The analysis is a little different. So we kind of looked this first article, which is expected to be released in March. 
um, is about the therapeutic or how tabletop role-playing games could be used as therapy or how, why um, like social workers should start considering these pop culture type practices more. So my thesis supervisor actually did his PhD on cosplay. Um, it's super cool. Uh, huh. So I was very lucky to find him. I can't remember what the second article was about anymore. It's been months <laughs> since I looked at it. Uh, so we have those coming out. I haven't, at the moment anyways, I'm not considering um, going back to school. Um, but if I ever did, I would definitely look at this topic more. I think what I would be more interested in um, if I did do it again would be to look at like the actual so I'd speak about it a little bit. So the thesis is not necessarily like about the game itself, but about the practice of role playing. So, you know, you kind of, you meet with friends, you know, you have your pizza break, you chit chat. Um, some people have like a, a group chat on Facebook where they just like exclusively talk about um, their characters and you know if your character was a vegetable which vegetable would it be things like that <laughs> um, so I think I would be interested in looking at kind of the more ritualistic aspect and the more social aspect of it and see how people are playing their characters how other players other characters are reacting to these characters you know, what happens in between the game, the character breaks, like, I think that would be where my research would go next, um, to kind of further look into like, what these games offer socially, because that's what this thesis is about. It's really about the social process um, that these games provide. And it's not just a psychological process that we see, um, like a lot of current research talk about um, right yeah we like an example like uh one of my games we play a west march is style D, &D which is um, if you're not familiar it's it's sort of like um continuous one shots so you play a one shot in the sense of like you finish each adventure back where you started um and then so we have a a message uh messenger group that is quote in the tavern and so between sessions we just like we can role playing character and just kind of screw around and joke around mm -hmm. um yeah. and it's not like related to any of the rules of the game or anything like that like it's just strictly to the sort of the existing lore and 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 characters um and sometimes we don't do it like sometimes you don't see anything for between uh games and sometimes there's like you know thousands of words of of text in in them between games yeah i mean for one of the world of darkness games i i uh i, I ran i set up a, a an in-game online forum like a full forum that only my players had access to and then i had created multiple accounts for myself so i could post as multiple different kinds of npcs um and it was it was one way i could deliver information to the players out of game 
because I could have ally NPCs like contact them and send them emails and give them stuff. It was a modern setting, so it wasn't like uh, it wasn't uh, anachronistic or anything. But it was it was it was another way to extend uh, the space of the game uh, past the table, and mm-hmm. I, I found it really effective and fun. But I haven't done such since boy, that was like ten years ago. But yeah. I uh, I know you just mentioned that um, the like focus of your research was on the social element of it, um, but for us as game designers, I guess we're we're always kind of concerned about how to better build our our games. Um, and I'm not sure if um, you've looked specifically at it, but would you have some insight? Um, and I guess I'm most curious with like reading up on the liminal space, um, that transformative space that players can get into. Um, do you have some potential insight to to share on like what kinds of things that came up um, that best encouraged players to be able to to feel like they could enter that liminal space, um, or, or mechanically, sort of what the games provide that encourage that? Yeah, I'm very interested in that question. Also, it's 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 a central feature of my game. But like, yeah, that, yeah, it's another question I wanted to ask specifically. Go ahead. Um, well, I can talk to you like a little bit about the liminal space first, I guess. Yeah, please. Um, so it's an anthropological <laughs> term, um, and it actually comes from. It's supposed to be that moment in a um, like rite of passage when the individual is not who they were and not yet who they will be. Um, So it's very like, it originally comes from this guy who was kind of studying um, tribes and these people, like oftentimes during these rituals, you will be removed from your community. Um, And, you know, sometimes what you're wearing will change. You'll be treated differently. Um, so you're essentially, you're no longer, if we take like the idea of uh, marriage, you know, the woman will be taken out of the community. Um, she will be dressed in something else. She's no longer treated kind of as a girl or an unmarried woman. Um, she goes through these rituals and then afterwards she becomes married. She is a new person. So the liminal space is really like that small moment um, Mm. right there. Uh, So some of the qualities, so this other guy, he is still from anthropology, kind of took it um, and made it so that it can be used in a wider context. So some of the big qualities of a liminal space are one, it still needs to have elements or reflect in some way your the, the real society. So you're no longer in the society or like your social reality is kind of what we would call it usually in sociology. Um, so you're no longer in that social reality, but there are still elements of it that exist. And the point of this is really in this liminal space, you're supposed to be thinking about society um, and being able to come out of that liminal space with a new idea about society and like new ways that you could change it or new ways for you 
to mm-hmm. be is kind of the big idea of it. Um, so <laughs> I, and then they, there are other things like it's meant to be a safe space. Um, there's not supposed to be a hierarchy when you're in this liminal space, mm-hmm. uh, which although, you know, the GM is considered uh, sometimes like a little bit of a leader or could be considered more powerful, uh, the argument I kind of make is that um, they still, the GM still needs to be um, like negotiate with their players because if there's a bad GM, people are going to leave the table. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I guess kind of, the game, the two-player game, I think it was Jonathan. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess like that could like possibly be like a really good example of a liminal space, like taking away that hierarchy, possibly. Um, yeah, yeah, I, oh, I think ahead. there is um, uh, multiple games that sort of uh, take away hierarchy. Um, yeah. And two-player games, but uh, there's also like two-player games that explicitly have hierarchy too. So sometimes it's more equal than than others. Um, I don't know. Equals a yeah, but, maybe but, the wrong but, word. One of the games that uh, Rob mentioned near the beginning, uh, dialect. It has a semi-formal leadership, but their only duty above and beyond is to explain the rules to everyone else. It, it is it rotates authority in a very clean way but it's huh. actually uh rob do you want to say more about this or should i try to keep no. talking no I, it, what it does is it decentralizes the the gming responsibilities basically it 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 keeps rule like Kavor said it, it uh it basically it assumes one person reads the book and explains the rules to everyone else and beyond that the authority of the GM is 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 farmed out, so not everyone takes on those roles at the same time. But throughout the course of play, it's sort of assumed that everybody gets to make authoritative choices at the table and say what happens next, mm. which is uh, generally yeah. what the GM has to do. Yeah, and I I think we kind of get turned around because or role-playing games for a long time have been turned around because Gary Gygax said that the GM has all the power, um, which even then wasn't true. But uh, mm. but I think now we sort of understand that each player um, needs to surrender agency at some point, and, and each player also gets agency at some point. Yeah, um, and it's sort of a play uh, between each player, like how that works. I guess. Yeah. Right, and and that. So when you're doing that sort of thing, it's it's more like um, even when you have one GM, you're still uh, you're still exchanging authority when you ask something like, "What do you do?" Right. Yeah, and then and then exactly. and then the player has that agency, like, and that explicit responsibility to say what ha- their character does, and sometimes that even extends past their the limits of their character in in different games. But 
Yeah. Even then, the GM is giving up authority to that player in that moment. Hmm. There is also... Oh, go ahead, Catrice. Sorry, there's like a question that's bugging me about the liminal spaces, and you are now the authority on this because I've never even heard this term until today. <laughs> but, but this really seems so strange to me that you were saying like liminal spaces are supposed to be safe spaces because it's like anything that I would normally think of as a liminal space, like almost all of them are almost complete contradictions to that. Like a coming of age ceremony, or if you're doing like basic military training, like their idea is to basically destroy you and rebuild you, or even defending your thesis, which you just did, is pretty much the opposite of a safe space. Like their whole point is usually to to challenge everything, like to criticize you heavily, to to be like okay, what you were can no longer exist. There's something wrong with it. We're going to transition you from that space into something new, which is probably more useful to society. So this seems like this is not a safe space. Or am I understanding this wrong? <laughs> I, it's not necessarily that what you were before is wrong. It's just that you're... Um, transitioning into something new so i think like the understanding of a safe space is more that this is really um like your so i think kind of in a more like anthropological like cultural study is that this moment is like a safe time for you to really think about and question um your social context and kind of be creative, um, take action, like gain new knowledge and come out as a new person, um, whatever that might be, um, more so than what you were before was bad. And I think actually your defense example might actually be um, possibly like a good liminal space example in my case anyways because that's the thing too is that kind of the thesis kind of ends that like not all games are going to be a liminal space um mm. so you need kind of like these qualities to come through but in my personal uh thesis defense it was actually like a very positive like they weren't attacking me they weren't like trying to like destroy my argument or anything it was a lot more of like a discussion of oh well did you think about like this did you think about that and that's kind of like uh for example why we ended up in talking about like the x card and a little bit of a conversation about uh power so it was actually kind of more like a knowledge sharing space i guess um, that made me come out from it a little more knowledgeable, thinking about different questions, and then, you know, edit a little bit and submit this better work than it had been previously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, in the sense, like, we can play the same game for, uh, you know, multiple months or even years, and, and, you know, it only created a liminal space for us a couple of times in certain specific situations where we were 
maybe went through a situation where um, we got that sort of transition or that uh, learning or whatever. I think you talked about one of the players teaching uh, uh, a young child how to play through their like character actions. Um, and like that might be considered like a liminal space where that sort of changed or they had an opportunity to change and safe space would in the sense of like it was just within within the game itself. Um, yeah, I don't so, know what you think of that. Um, so with one thing that has come out kind of like more recently in the discussion of a liminal space is that it can be multiple like short interactions that can add up together so to you know create you're experiencing like a liminal space like multiple times and then you're slowly kind of going through this transition which is kind of the argument um with a tabletop role-playing game so these people for example came in like a lot of them um don't a lot of like people who were experiencing depression weren't, you know, getting out socially. They, you know, weren't able to have an employment, um, things like that. Like they didn't feel like they were participating in society. Then they start playing these games, and it's kind of like um, I kind of think of participation a little bit on like a scale, I guess. So for some people, um, it was literally like just the act of going out and playing a game and you know that was them starting to be social participants and then all of a sudden we get to these people um who are not only just going out to play a game but now they're volunteering and weekly leading these uh one-shot games uh with different players um and you know contributing to charity uh, so it's kind of the practice of tabletop role-playing games and all like the qualities of the, you know, you're have a community around you, you're gaining validation from these people. You're able to play um, a character that you wish you could be more like, and you start to kind of develop the same skills that this character in the game has, but you're using them in real life. And this is having um positive effects on you outside of the game if that yes. makes sense yeah it does thanks for explaining it so eloquently yeah I, I mean that is very much uh i'm it's a subject i'm very interested in because that's it's really the thrust of one, one of the games i'm designing is we're really trying to get at the how that works and how how it can be used to um hmm. no i don't want to say that yet <laughs> go ahead <laughs> that might that might be I'm, i don't know if i want to go into that aspect of it but <laughs> it, there, there's 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 aspirations i have for the game that are deeply entwined with what you're talking about so yeah it was really interesting to me that um we were able to connect and i was able to participate in this and I'm really happy that you came on the podcast as well, and we're able to talk talk to us some more about it because it's a subject I'm I'm really fascinated by, like particularly particularly um, how it can help people uh, 
game skill, like how, how games can help people gain transferable skills and generalizable skills. Uh, that's, that's something I'm very fascinated by because uh, there have been some games that have done that for me and it's, not, it's still not obvious to me how they were able to do it. And it, it's not consistent because other people that have played those games have not had the same experience. So what is it in those games that touched something in me that gave me a generalizable skill to take out into the real world versus um, wh- why didn't it work on somebody else? And, or you know, what is it about this particular game that worked on me and spoke my language in such a way that I was able to get the message? And why do some games work for other people in different ways? And, and is, is there a generalizable thing there that, I, that we can extract? And uh, as game designers you know, that want to do something like that, develop a, uh, a, a structure around that such that if you want to design a game that helps people, how do you do it? You know, so, yeah. I think, like, I don't want to be, like, a little bit of a bummer, but kind of, I guess, like, this is also coming from, like, my sociological background, because criminology is just sociology. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, I guess, like, I, from what I research and my understanding is that it really comes down to kind of like less about the game and more about the players you're playing with and how they choose to shape the game. But also, like, you know, people need to explore different things. So I guess, like, you really want games that can um, really, you know, touch on like a, every possible topic or explore like any possible um, theme, which mm-hmm. is not, you know, like realistically speaking, you're not going to have a good game that can do everything. So that kind of means we need a bunch of different games that can touch on these different things. Kind of not entirely surprised at part of that answer as well, because like just Rob's question originally, like the thing about like what made him get stuff out of things that many other players didn't get out of the same games. It's like to be honest, I don't think it's really the game so much in a lot of cases. A lot of the time, it's if you have a person who is actively trying to improve and grow themselves and they're looking for any excuse or any sort of like method by which they can build themselves further like anything they can use as a trellis they'll find a way to do so it's like i think to some degree somebody who just isn't looking for ways to grow he's not going to grow in the same way as somebody who is actively looking for ways to become better. I think I that's true, but like some games can be a better trellis than others, right? So Yeah, and, definitely. And, yeah. I, I think that there are some things you can do. Like I've gone out of my way, for example, in mind to try to make sure that the idea of holding a conversation, like the social situation setup that I built is to guide people through like the basic concepts of 
how a conversation flows, like to give prompts of, okay, you start off with basic small talk or something, like try to learn something about this person that you know nothing about, try to build like a rapport, common ground, and then once you have some knowledge about them, then you can go beyond that and start using that knowledge to further the conversation. Like mm -hmm. this is something that, like, let's be fair, a lot of the people that play RPGs are having problems with um, social cues and such. So if they've never seen it like written down in an obvious manner before, and it's just something they were expected to pick up naturally, I think it's probably going to help a little bit to actually have like, here's how this actually works logically, put the pieces in a place that makes logical sense. And I think that'll probably help like a lot of people maybe on like the autistic disorder spectrum, for example, because they're just not thinking about conversations in that way. Mm. I think that um, your guys' kind of discussion made me think of two other things too that kind of, or I can think of, pull, or I can pull out of my thesis as well, is that like, and I, like, I'm very confident that you guys already know this, but like, obviously the narrative is super important. That's where mm -hmm. people really like, I guess, being encouraged to build strong narratives because the people that I spoke to that kind of took a lot out of the games had built like these insane characters with crazy backstories um, and like you know somebody said they had like a three-page single space backstory on their character written mm -hmm. up <laughs> um, and Not then surprising. I mean yeah, yeah. <laughs> that leads um, to like you were kind of saying that people that, you know, only people, not only, but people that are more kind of like aiming to want to change are going to gain these benefits. But I like what happened with a lot of people is that it was actually um, like the exercise of like reflection later on. You know, I had one participant and she would be like, oh, you know, I'll be sitting on a bus and I'll be thinking about how the game went down. And then I'll be like, oh my God, my character did that because I'm struggling with feelings of abandonment. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, she would go to her, realize this is something that she needs to talk about with her uh, therapist. And so I think maybe like something, having the, like some sort of something that would kind of get people to reflect more on what's happening on in the game or why they're doing certain things that aren't necessarily just like, oh, that's my character, I'm playing my character. Right, that makes sense, yeah. Are there, are there specific aspects of who that character is and how they're defined? Like, this is basically the like, avatar agent the, the player is using to interact with the game world. Like, I think in your thesis, you mentioned character flaws as being one thing where like you, you use this as a lens with which you can reflect on. Um, are, there, are there other aspects like that that you think uh, either that you've come across or that you might uh, foresee as being good agents of this change? Like being able to reflect on your experiences 
game through that eyes of that character? What are those defining features? I, th <laughs> I think a lot of the people, I don't know if it was necessarily, um, like, you know, people really, I was actually, that was one of the most surprising things. You know, I honestly, like, came into a, this project kind of thinking that people were going to play, like, these superhero characters and kind of uh, feel powerful especially within like a, a carceral setting i would have thought that that would have been you know the thing that you know these people going through whatever are not experiencing power in their life and so they would experience it in the game which some people you know did say that sometimes that's why they're playing but like a lot of people had these you know crazy flaws about their characters and one of one kind of funny example was this one participant had created this character um and he smelled really bad he was like <laughs> the village uh, mason or something like that um and he smelled so bad because he was really dumb and somebody convinced him um because he was scared of birds that if he killed every bird and then bathed in their blood um you know he would be safe from birds or something like that. <laughs> that sounds like a very typical RPG story. Yep. <laughs> I've been I've been bathing with all the bird blood for years and it's not okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So this character, like, you know, he's dumb, he smells, but at the same time, you know, in his backstory, he was like a super, you know, people in the village really liked him and he had his own they gave him like his own little seat in the pub where he was like in a corner where two windows were open so it would just kind of draft the smell out so they could hang out with him <laughs> <laughs> so yeah the flaws and i like when he was speaking to it was a little bit of like a reflection of himself he wasn't very confident in himself and you know when he was like talking about dating you know he was er, and like never having a best friend he was just kind of like you know that's me that's who i am and you know he kind of feels like that person that kind of nobody really wants to be around but like he's still considered like he considered himself like a really nice guy and i can say like from my interaction with him he, he was lovely to be with but you know I guess it was like a little bit of like who he wants to be and who um kind of what he's experiencing. It was like a mix of the two. Mm. So, uh, right. I don't really remember where I was going with this, but I remember my other point was that most people also didn't build characters, like purposefully build characters that resembled them. But like afterwards, like, I don't know if it was a study that made them think about it or if it was just like kind of like, you know, sitting around on the bus on your way home bored and looking back and being like, oh, yeah, that character is a little bit like me. Um, so yeah, I don't know if we can like force people to do it. I think it just happens. I guess there could be ways we could encourage it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain games that are attractors for that, right? because they have certain offerings. And I, I think that's probably, like for me, one of the games that definitely did that for me was Bloodborne, which is a video game, but it was, um, 
it had certain aspects that attracted me to it initially, even though it wasn't, I wasn't looking for that sort of self-improvement thing, but there were aspects of it that were aimed at what I could, you know, people in my situation with my particular proclivities. So, I mean, I was wondering if anything came up for you like that, but yeah, no, I, I see where you're going with that. Where it's like, and where to Catrice's point where if somebody's looking to, to, to enter a liminal space, uh, any good trellis in front of them will, 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 will do, you know? So I think yeah, it makes in sense. the game sense for ways that you can make use of this, I think probably a very good way to do this is to get players to actually get encouraged to roleplay their character out, especially those flaws, mm. because like even in the paper itself, it actually there were several of the people that were interviewed had mentioned that like their characters ended up being at least partially a reflection of themselves and and had pointed out that oh you kind of can't write or play a character that you don't know anything about so it's usually going to be some aspect of your own psychology that's just been blown out of proportion exaggerated like there's something in there of yourself in every character. There kind of has to be. It just may be brought from like, oh, this is a minor flaw I have to. What if we make this the entire character's like overriding personality? Mm-hmm. Just how bad does this become? Mm-hmm. And once you put a character into that existence, then it's just a matter of making sure the player actually plays the character. And as they play the character, Basically, their subconscious has to work through these concepts as they're playing it because there's no real option not to, I think. I think that's a good point. <laughs> awesome. That gives a lot of food for thought, just in terms of like when we're when we're designing um, the kinds of experiences that we want the players to like leave the table with mm-hmm. uh, and what kind of repercussion that me um i think we can definitely try to like keep that in mind as game designers for you know the the sort of angles that we want players to be reflecting on their experiences with so whether it's like your your character is a collection of flaws that you choose for them or or whatever it is um you're definitely going to be having those players leave the table with some kind of impression um and that outside the game space can be just as important as inside the game space mm-hmm. Especially yeah. on the flaws. Because like right. when I was going through building mine, I learned that the majority of your personality seems to be based on your flaws, not like your positive aspects. I so, think... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, that's probably all I really had to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, like another interesting thing that came out as well, um, like for especially like the one participant was she had all these flaws in her character and all these things that she felt super insecure about and she kind of like beat herself up about you know outside of the game and she's kind of like i see my character you know doing these things or like having these flaws and like people still love her and they still think she's awesome 
So it's kind of like a, I guess like for her, it's a little bit of a way to see that, you know, her flaws are not, a flaw is not necessarily bad. And like, you know, it's gives you character as well to have these flaws. It gives you a personality. It makes you a person at the end mm-hmm. of the day. Mm-hmm. It's part of us, but not all of us. Well, yeah. it makes sense too. Like the whole concept of like, you might like someone for their positive traits, but you love someone for their flaws because that's what defines them as who they are. So it would be kind of weird if you didn't love someone for who they are. (laughs) (laughs) Or at least all, if you're going to love somebody, you're going to love all of them, right? So you are going to love their flaws as well. Mm -hmm. Even that part, even, you know, no matter how large or small they may be. Um, But I think if you, if you are committed for whatever reason, either you're in a committed relationship or you're their family or uh, something like that. You're going to love friends them or whatever yeah. friends. Sure. Mm-hmm. That was a little pointed, Jonathan. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to leave out like relationships that aren't mm-hmm. traditional, like uh, quote, love relationships. Right. Right. No, I see. I know what you mean, but, but if you're going to love somebody in the sense of uh, wish the best for them continually, um, you're going to love them for their flaws as well. Right. And through their flaws and, in spite of their flaws, you know, so yeah. Jonathan's route, it makes more sense to think of it as like the concept of we tend to go and interact with people that their particular brand of crazy just happens to mesh well with our particular (laughs) brand of crazy. (laughs) And that's why we're all here. (laughs) Guess like it's kind of you want to make as like human like these characters to have the opportunity to be kind of as human as possible with all the same vulnerabilities and all the same flaws and fears and this and that but you want to incorporate some sort of fantastical feature that you don't experience mm-hmm. regularly mm-hmm. Well, even if you're playing like a non-human character, you still want to retain like some level of humanity. Otherwise, you couldn't really properly associate with the character. Like there has to be something in there that makes sense on some level to you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think we. Oh, go ahead. No, I think that's that's good. I uh, I'm really happy with where this discussion went and what we got to to talk about. So I'm um, well looking forward to hearing when your your papers come out because I think it'd be fun to get the the latest bits of insight from your data. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah, please come back when you're uh, when you or anytime <laughs> really. I mean, <laughs> but uh, yeah, when you when you get work through that and, and see what else is there, that'd be pretty interesting to find out. For sure. Oh, are we wrapping up now? <laughs> I think so. We, we're at 90 minutes. It's probably uh, pretty late where she is. That's fair enough. Yeah, right. well, thanks for coming on, Anne. You're another great addition to this podcast. And we're very happy to have had you. Mm-hmm. Well, Thank you very much for inviting me. My thesis supervisor is very looking forward to hearing it. So. Oh, cool. nice. Cool. <laughs> well, uh, all right. <clears throat> I'm going to wrap it up then. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Flail Forward. 
uh, good night. It is night where you are. Always remember that. And uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.